power brokers of our world try to be very impressive. But the mortality rate for presidents and prime ministers and kings is 100%. God alone is eternal. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of his series titled The Seven Churches of Revelation. We're studying Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation as found in chapters two and three. Last time we looked at the first letter addressed to the church in Ephesus, exploring how they lost their first love. Today, Tom will look at what Christ had to say to the church in Smyrna, a small congregation that was experiencing serious persecution. And as you'll learn, this letter is profoundly helpful in helping believers understand the reality and promise of persecution from Scripture for all who desire to live faithfully in Christ and how you should respond when persecution comes, whether it's slight or in some cases extreme. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I don't know if you saw the article or not, but back a couple of years ago, BBC News featured the following headline, Christian Persecution at Near Genocide Levels. The article went on to say that one in three people worldwide suffer from religious persecution and that Christians are the most persecuted religious group. The article went on to say this, Christianity is at a risk of disappearing in some parts of the world. Evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity, end quote. Now, that's not something that we like to think about a lot, but I think at the same time, we all have a sense that that is coming to America. Maybe not in the next few days, maybe not in the next few years even, but it's coming. The more pagan our culture gets, the more it diverges from the Judeo-Christian values that have, that have been a part of our culture, and the less and fewer Christians there are, the less voice Christians have, the more pronounced this will become. But I think it's also important to understand that it's already here. Many of you sitting here tonight have experienced persecution. We tend to think of persecution as you know, something physical done to us, an act of physical violence, or throwing us in prison, and of course that is persecution, but Jesus defined persecution far more broadly than that. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he said, here's what persecution is if people insult you because of me. If people say evil things against you behind your back because of your confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. If you're passed over, and now I'm, I'm adding to that list a little bit, but certainly in keeping with the spirit of what our Lord shared, if you're passed over for that promotion because you are a person of integrity, and on and on the list goes. 
So persecution is not merely something out there, somewhere on the other side of the planet that may someday ooze into our culture. It is a day-to-day reality, and I suspect if you understand that to be persecution, I could march many of us in this room up here, and you could share stories of how you have faced persecution for your faith. How is it that we should respond, whether it's to the persecution that is already a reality in our lives or that that could come? How do we respond? Well, tonight we get a chance to learn from what Christ had to say to a small first century church that was experiencing serious persecution. And what Christ said to them directly is profoundly helpful in helping us understand the reality of persecution and how we should respond to those small insults spoken behind our back and to the looming threat that's far greater and more severe. Let's look at it together. Just to remind you of our context, we're looking at the book of Revelation in chapter 1. We saw the things which you have seen, the setting of Jesus' prophecy. This outline, of course, comes from Revelation 1.19, and the things which you have seen had to do with the setting of the prophecy described in chapter 1. We are currently looking at the things which are the state of Jesus' church, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, running through the end of chapter 3, the letters to the seven churches. Jesus dictated letters to seven first-century churches located in seven cities in Asia Minor, or modern Turkey. Those seven churches are representative, they were real churches, and they are representative of all churches that existed in the first century, because you can find their counterparts in, in other places in the first century, and they are at the same time representative of, of churches throughout church history in the sense that, again, there are churches today that are like the church in Ephesus. There are churches today that are like the church in Smyrna and so forth. All seven letters share the same repeating structure and outline, and it's really the one that we're using as we work our way through. We're looking at the introduction, which you can see is in points one and two there, to the angel of the in the certain city church right. And then Greek says, this says the one, followed by Christ's own personalized self-description from the vision in chapter one. The body of the letter in all seven cases begins with, I know, I know. And there's commendation of the good. If there is an issue in the church, there's the correction of the sin and a call for repentance. And then the conclusion of the letter has this repeating phrase, the one having ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then, to the one overcoming, followed by Christ's personalized promise to the persevering believer in that local church. So, each of the seven letters follows that same basic outline, and we're following that as well. So, with that background, let's read together the letter to the church in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, 
and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In this letter to the church in Smyrna, Christ encourages His church by reminding us that He knows when we suffer for His sake. He controls that persecution, and He will reward us for our faithfulness to Him and to His truth through that time of persecution. That's the message of this great letter. So let's consider it together, following again our Lord's outline. It begins with the introduction to the letter, the command to write. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. First of all, in this introduction, we see the character of the city. We're introduced to the city. It's a city by the name of Smyrna. Now, of the cities in which these seven churches in Revelation are based, It's interesting that Smyrna is the only one where there is a city still in existence, and it still has a Christian church. The modern city is Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey with almost three million people, and it is still an operating port. In fact, it is Turkey's largest port. So that's the city as it is now. Now let's go back to when it was called Smyrna. Smyrna, the ancient name of the city, means bitter. This Greek term is used in the Septuagint for myrrh, the aromatic resin used as a perfume, as an anesthetic, as well as an embalming. The city's location, as you saw on the map I just showed you, is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's a beautiful seaport city on the eastern gulf of the Aegean Sea. Here is a reconstruction of what the city might have looked like in ancient times. Strabo, the ancient geographer, called Smyrna the most beautiful of all cities. It was one of several cities that claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, and it is is where Homer grew up. It was well protected at the end of a quiet gulf, not directly on the Aegean Sea. And on the eastern side, back toward the land, a river flowed through the rich valley of the Hermus, bringing all kinds of trade into the city and then through the city out to the Mediterranean to to sail around the Mediterranean. The history of this city goes back a long way. We don't know exactly how far, but we do know this. The original Greek colony was founded about a thousand years before Christ. It was destroyed 400 years later, around 580 B.C., and this is interesting. This is very unusual, but the city then lay in ruins for 300 years. Alexander the Great was hunting on the Acropolis around the ruins of that ancient city, and he decided to rebuild the city, but he wasn't the one to accomplish it. Instead, two of his successors, the chief one being Lysimachus, 
finally rebuilt it around the year 290, 290 B.C. Lysimachus built it or rebuilt it in an interesting way. He built it to a comprehensive plan, making it one of the very few cities of antiquity that was literally pre-planned. It didn't just happen as he rebuilt it. It was, compl- it was planned from beginning to end. It was one of the greatest cities in that part of the world. In fact, we have coins from the city of Smyrna, and minted onto the coins, the city is described as the first of Asia in beauty and size. Its streets were attractive. They were well-paved. Its outlying streets were, were lined with groves of trees. There was a famous street called the Street of Gold that curved around a, a, a mountain called Mount Pegasus. It was actually a hill that rose about 500 feet above the harbor. And the Street of Gold found its way around that mountain like a necklace on the statue of a goddess. On one end of the necklace was the temple of Sibel, on the other was the temple of Zeus, and in between there were other temples to gods like Apollo and Aphrodite. These stately temples around that elevated mount were described as the crown of Smyrna because of their orderly arrangement around the top of Mount Pegasus. The city had a knack politically to always be on the winning side. Before Rome was a world power that it became, while it was still battling the Carthaginians, Smyrna committed to Rome and remained loyal to Rome throughout the centuries. In fact, as early as 195 B.C., Smyrna built a temple to the goddess of Rome the deification of Rome. It was said to be the very first in the world. When Rome's general, Sulla, and his armies found themselves without proper uniforms for the harsh winter weather they found themselves in, the leaders and the citizens of Smyrna sent their own garments to Sulla's troops to clothe them. Because of their loyalty to Rome, in 26 A.D., Smyrna was given the honor, picked out of ten cities that applied for this privilege, to build a temple in Smyrna to the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna, and this becomes very important for what we're going to learn in Christ's letter, Smyrna became one of the very first cities to worship the Roman emperor. Now, you're familiar, if you're familiar with Roman history at all, that the emperors were considered deity. At first, when that began, the emperors really didn't take their deification very seriously. Instead, it was a manner of political strategy, a way to unify the diverse cultures, languages, and customs of the empire. It was political expediency. It seemed like a good idea. Let's, let's unite people around the spirit of Rome, and the spirit of Rome finds its, finds its center in the man who's currently the emperor. Like all things political, they tend to go where those who created them don't intend for them to go, and eventually refusal to worship the emperor was considered an act of treason. In fact, under Domitian, the emperor at the time of John, when he wrote this this letter, emperor worship had become compulsory. 
Think about this. Imagine yourself now a Christian living in first century Smyrna. Here's what was required of you. Once a year, every citizen was to go to the temple to the Roman emperor there in Smyrna and burn incense on the altar dedicated to the emperor. You had to do it. And it was so much a part of the culture that you got a certificate issued to you that you had done it. If you were found to be without that certificate, then you lacked privileges and could even risk being imprisoned or lose your life. Once you had made that yearly sacrifice to the emperor, then you could worship any god or gods that you chose to. But to fail to go once and to submit yourself to the emperor was a capital offense. So think about it. If you're a Christian living in Smyrna, all you had to do was this. Just go appear in the temple once a year, burn incense to the emperor, and repeat these simple words, Caesar is Lord, which of course no Christian could legitimately do. With Smyrna's strong ties to emperor worship, false charges brought by their enemies could have resulted in immediate imprisonment. So that background helps you understand why of the seven cities persecution was worse in Smyrna, even though they were so close together. I mean, these cities, remember, this is only 35 miles from Ephesus. It's only about 30 miles from the next city on the postal route. Why Smyrna? And here's the reason. Because of their fierce, unbending loyalty to Rome and to the worship of the emperor as a display of their loyalty to the Roman Empire. Now, that's the the background of the city, the character of the city. But let's consider for a moment the history of the church. Verse 8 says, to the angel of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly in Smyrna, write these words. We know very little about the history of the church in Smyrna. We're not even sure when it was founded. Likely, it was during the three years that Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. We read this in Acts 19.10 that while he was there, all who lived in Asia, and remember this is very close to Ephesus, 40, 35, 40 miles away, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So likely this church was planted and began during Paul's third missionary journey. That brings us in this letter to Christ's self-description, the description of Christ that he himself presents. Verse 8 goes on to say, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. Now, just to remind you, with each church, Christ presented a personalized self-description that was designed to fit their circumstances. And the description in every case goes back to the vision John saw in chapter 1. In the case of the church in Smyrna, a church characterized by faithful suffering, Christ reminds them of two things about himself. First of all, he reminds them that he is eternally sovereign over human history. Notice verse 8, the first and the last. We've already encountered that expression back in chapter 1, verse 17. We learned that it, it's used for God in the Old Testament. So this is a claim for the deity of Christ, but in its context, both in the Old Testament and the New, this expression, the first and the last, compares the true God 
against all the idols of the nations. They're here today, gone tomorrow. He is eternal. He is the first. He existed before they existed. He is the last. He'll be there when their shattered idols lie in the dustbin of history. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. There's no one beside Him. He's the first and the last. Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am He, I am first, the first, and I am also the last. So, if He was here before everything started, and if He's here after everything ends, what does that tell you about Him? It says that He is perpetually sovereign over all things that happen in human history. He existed before history began. He'll be reigning when human history ends, and He's sovereign over everything in between. This is such a comfort to a persecuted church. You imagine sitting in the upper room somewhere in a home in Smyrna, knowing that your life is threatened because you refuse to say Caesar is Lord, and Christ says, listen, you tell them, I said, I am the first and I am the last. I was here before there was a Caesar. I'll be here when they're gone. It's a comfort to us as well. You know, the, the power brokers of our world try to be very impressive but the mortality rate for presidents and prime ministers and kings is 100%. God alone is eternal. The second part of his self-description emphasizes that he died and was raised again. Again, verse 8, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. Even though Christ is the eternal sovereign God, the first and the last. He entered into history as a man. And notice, literally it says, he became dead and he has come to life. It it describes both events as as an event in history. Jesus was reminding this church of the historical facts of his own physical death and resurrection. And again, Can you imagine anything more encouraging for a church where some of its members would soon be facing martyrdom? Jesus says, listen, I have walked this path before you. I died, and I defeated death, and I'm alive forevermore. You don't have to worry about death. I defeated it. You know, it's interesting, too, that the city itself, the city of Smyrna, had experienced the same reality. It was dead for 300 years and had come back to life. This was Christ's reminder to His own not to fear death. He died. He defeated it. He now has, as Hebrews 7.16 says, the power of an indestructible life. Christ reminded these believers that even if they died at the hands of their persecutors, They worship the only one in existence who has conquered death. And because they're His, they don't have to worry. I died, I came back to life. And if you die on my behalf, Christ says, so will you.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series titled The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then. But Tom, would you encourage those who are experiencing a form of persecution even right now? You know, Bill, I think the most encouraging thing is just to realize that many of us are persecuted. I I think we tend to think of persecution as something that happens somewhere else to somebody else. We think of it as physical suffering or having our home stolen or having our loved ones imprisoned or being killed for the sake of the gospel. Obviously, those are extreme forms of persecution. but, But remember, when our Lord talks about being persecuted for his sake, he includes things like being insulted because of what you believe, because of your attachment to him, being ridiculed, being passed over for a promotion. All of those things that we all have faced fall under persecution. And our Lord says, when you endure that, you are blessed. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.